Welcome in to the All Things Go podcast, episode eight. I'm your host, Derek Yoder, joined as always by my co-host, Brian Murphy of Stuart Haas Racing. And Brian, before we welcome on our guests this evening, we got to start with the Packers. We teased it last week uh, in the intro when we were saying about you going to the game. So you went, Packers blew out the Vikings. Uh, how was your time and, and anything you can share from your uh, time in Green Bay? Yeah, what a trip, uh, you know, from from the time we left Mooresville to the time we, you know, got back to Mooresville, there wasn't a single hiccup the entire the entire trip. So everything went great. The Packers, as you said, just blew out the Vikings. So, uh, you know, what a what a great, great game. You know, I, I'm not one that really likes the close games. I, I'd, I'd like them to blow them out uh, and just and let her rip. So um, the fans were great. The, the crowd was louder than ever. Uh, not a single person sat down the entire game. So. Yeah, again, another great, uh, great trip to Lambeau. But uh, funny story that the night uh, New Year's Eve, we went out, we had some drinks. I had maybe a little bit too many. And, and on our way to my uncle's house, uh, you know, one of the drivers uh, had, had never been there before. And I kind of gave him some bad directions. And uh, we walked up to the house. I tried walking in. Uh, it was locked. So I rung the doorbell and I knew some people were going to be there that I didn't know. And we walked into the house and I started introducing myself only for me to realize that I had just walked into the wrong house. So, uh, oh, no. <laughs> quite, uh, <laughs> quite embarrassing, quite an embarrassing situation there, but, uh, there was plenty of laughs. Um, you know, the, the couple that lived in the house, uh, they, they, they took it, you know, on the good side. So, um, we're going to, we're probably going to send them a basket, a, a sorry basket of some kind, um, you know, for their, their lightheartedness. That is, uh, that's funny. Uh, and that's probably a good move on your part so that they don't call the cops <laughs> and say, well, this gentleman was here, but, uh, like you said, Packers won, they dominated the Vikings. Hopefully you're going back up to the game, uh, as a good luck charm, if you will. Uh, I know they play Sunday last game of the regular season. So, uh, good story. And I'm glad that you had a good time. So hopefully they can win on Sunday, but, uh, I do want to welcome on a very special guest. Uh, Justin Fiedler. So Justin uh, is a content creator, uh, to say the least, uh, with Dirt Tracker. And uh, you can find him on Twitter uh, and YouTube uh, at Justin underscore Fiedler. Uh, he produces a daily podcast YouTube show called uh, The Dirt Tracker and uh, was a former uh, NASCAR pit crew member for 14, 16 plus years. So I can't wait to hear uh, some of those stories. So, Justin, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. And a special guest. I mean, let's, you know, a, a little bit uh, a little bit much there, but uh, I appreciate you guys having me I on. I did say a very special guest. Well, I know there's going to be yeah. so much that we're going to get into. I know so many people are going to enjoy hearing uh, not only your background, but so much from the dirt uh, racing scene. I know there's that's kind of the season right now with the Tulsa shootout and then the uh, uh, Chili Bowl coming up. So uh, we're, we're going to give you those accolades out of the gate. That's for sure. No, I appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, thanks for having me on. And I actually just listened to the Parker Kligerman one. Um, can, can I just say like, I, I am uh, encouraging people all of the time, like around me, I get asked all the time about starting shows and doing podcasts and, and, you know, there's just not enough content, I think right now, just generally around motorsports. Um, but you guys sound so good, just right out of the gate. Like, can I just say that? Like your show is so professional. Like no one does a great job out of the gate. And I can say that because I've started a couple of shows now. And if you go back to like the beginnings of our podcast with open red or the beginnings of dirt tracker, it sounds so terrible in the beginning. And I feel like you guys didn't go through that. So I, I'm like jealous that you guys were good right off the bat. 
Well, I appreciate that, but you don't see what happens behind the scenes. Uh, but no, it's it's a lot of fun. It, it's easy to work with Brian, and, and I appreciate those uh, compliments there, Justin. Yeah, we've had a good time uh, doing it. We've, Like you said, we had Parker on and had a good episode with him last week with Steve Post. So we've been having some really good conversations. And, uh, you know, one, one reason for the name of the show, All Things Go, is to kind of highlight all, uh, you know, realms of motorsports if you will so uh definitely going to be kind of fun as the seasons and, and the months go on your compliments since you do a show daily show uh talk, i listened to your show today i mean that's something doing something every day uh is is a lot of work but also you know putting in that time and effort what, what kind of got you started uh with doing that well so like my kind of general podcasting journey started in 2016 when i worked for the world of outlaws and, and i had gotten like really into the dinner with racers podcast um and so at the time i was like listening to dinner with racers and i was working for the outlaws and we didn't have any content like that and i had kind of been like i just approached my boss at the time and i was like you know i think we should do a podcast and, I, and i'm not sure what that looks like um you know and i don't know if it's if it's johnny gibson the world of outlaws announcer you know interviewing drivers or i don't know if it's me and our video guy ross just kind of being a-holes and she was like i like you and ross being a-holes let's do that and she was like, how quickly can you get this thing started? And uh, and so we kind of just jumped from there. You know, it was June, I think, of 2016. And a couple of weeks later, we had a show. So, you know, we did, did that for a couple of years. And then, you know, I, I started this dirt tracker project because of a, a computer science class that I had taken and I needed to do a final project. And it started as a website. And then I don't know why I decided stupidly to do this thing daily, but um, I started doing it at the beginning of 2020 and it's a lot of work. I've done 720 something daily shows to this point. And I spend usually three or four hours a day doing research and writing a script and putting it all together. Um, and it's normally like eight minutes, nine minutes. It's like so much work for just a couple of minutes of a show. But um, yeah, I've been kind of doing podcasting now for what six or seven years and uh i really enjoy it and well i left the world of outlaws in 2020 kind of in the middle of covid and all of that stuff and and i wanted a way to kind of just stay involved in the dirt racing community and it was it was a fun way to to continue to do that and and to stay involved and and to continue having a reason to you know to to talk to people and and you know and podcasts and all those things so it's um it's it's a lot of work um but i i enjoy it a lot no, that's good. And one thing I want you to do, because I, I when I was listening to the show, I think you did it right after Christmas, um, but you highlighted some of your accomplishments and some of the followers, the uh, subscriptions. Do you mind touching on, you know, how some of those levels that you achieved? Because they are amazing numbers, especially for somebody like yourself that's doing it every day to kind of see those because you had what millions of listeners or something like that. And just some of the numbers were, were amazing where you, you can tell that backing that following uh, is strong. Yeah, I've got 13,000 YouTube subscribers at this point. Um, I did about 2 million views for the year of 2022. And the, the total project, um, I'd have to open up my spreadsheet, but I'm somewhere like 3.5 million total views, plays, downloads of the show over the, over the last three-ish years, two and a half years um, that I've been doing it. But I've, I'm at a point where kind of between the podcast, because the show is on YouTube, but it's also in podcast form as well. Um, but I'm at a point where I've been having 125,000, 150,000 people a month kind of tuning into shows. Wow. Um, and I've had uh, my best shows to date on YouTube. I've done over 50,000 views individually. So, um, really have, cool. yeah, it's it's been really fun to hear, especially this last kind of month of December. 
Um, I was over 400,000 views just for the month. Um, mm -hmm. And there was, you know, a lot of things happening kind of in dirt racing that, you know, kind of contributed to that. Um, so it's been nice to, to see the growth, but also to kind of have some fun stuff to talk about. So when it comes to the world of outlaws, like you said, you were working uh, with that organization. What exactly were you doing with them? Uh, and can you let the people kind of know what that background looked like there? Yeah, I started working at the at World Racing Group, which is the parent company of the World of Outlaws. They own the World of Outlaws. They own Dirt Car. You know, they own uh, you know a couple of series, and and you know, so they have the Volusia Speedway Park. They own some big events, Super Dirt Week, Dirt Car Nationals. Uh, I started there in 2013, and I did web development and social media stuff. So, um, you know, the, if you know anything about Dirt Vision. Uh, you know, Dirt Vision used to be just kind of pay-per-view, 50, 60 shows a year. And now you can watch every Water of Outlaws sprint car race, every Water of Outlaws light model race. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of race nights a year. And it became, you know, it was it used to be where you would buy broadcasts individually. And then at a certain point, we switched over to a subscription model. And I built out all of that functionality for that website to be able to handle that. And there's a whole video vault there and all of these things that we did. Um, and then I did, I mean, I, I literally did, you know, for various points, all of our social media strategy, I did Facebook and Twitter and Google ads for ticket sales. I mean, it was basically like if it's in, if it was involved digital, you know, I had my hands in it. And I, and I loved that because I got to work literally with all parts of the business. And it was, you know, we did stuff for competition. You know, I helped out with rule books. You know, uh, if you know anything about like the dirt car sanctioning is basically their version of like weekly racing the points system that they use, the software, I built that for them to use and they dump in their results and then it spits out their points. Uh, so if you go to dirtcar.com and click on points, all of that stuff is uh, are things I built. But my brother worked there for a while too. And, and you know, a lot of the stuff that you see, you know, kind of on a race day from the World of Outlaws accounts, you know, those things that they do, the way the strategies were put together, like all of that stuff was things that we developed six, seven, eight years ago. Um, and so spent a lot of time there, you know, kind of doing things and building stuff up and, and a lot of the stuff that you see now, they've kind of moved on like Dirt Vision's on a completely different platform now from the one that I had built. Um, but, you know, wordaboutloss.com is still very similar to kind of the things that we had done then. And, and um, Chris Owens is kind of the main web developer now. Chris is actually a photographer in NASCAR. Um, he does a lot of stuff for Harold Hinson and uh, we had hired him on and, and kind of brought him up in, in, you know, up to speed on all of the things we were doing. And he's done a great job now kind of taking it from what I had done with it. Um, but yeah, spent a lot of time at, at the Ward of Outlaws and still have a lot of friends there. Still, you know, know a lot of people that work there and love the product. Um, I just, you know, I got to a point where getting to be home during COVID and like hang out with my wife and hang out with my son. And, you know, I spent, you know, the better part of a decade working seven days a week. And I was like, man, it's kind of nice, like being home to like hang out with people. So it just kind of got to a point where I was like, you know, I'm going to, um, you know, just change tires and, uh, you know, enjoy my weeks at, at home and, and then kind of do some of my other stuff on the side. So, well, before we get into some of the tire changing uh, element of your background, I'm curious uh, how you got into motorsports. Were you always affiliated uh, with the, the background or with that background or, or how did you kind of get connected there? Well, it's interesting. I'm from Oregon and, you know, there's not a huge motorsports scene kind of Oregon, Washington. Yeah. Um, but back then, like the first races I actually went to as a kid were, were actually dirt races. Uh, Southern Oregon, where I'm from, it was a big logging area. Um, and not far from one of the mills near my house was the old Medford Speedway, which was a dirt track. And my dad used to drive tow trucks. And so at the time he would come out on the Fridays and Saturday nights and, you know, run the, run the tow truck for the racetrack. And we used to go sit in the stands. And I remember oh, being, nice. I remember being three years old, four years old, getting pelted with dirt clods and stuff sitting <laughs> in the stands. But, 
that's my, when you fell in love with it, right? You were exactly. getting hit by the dirt and you're like, I, yeah. I love it now. Yeah. Yeah. But my, I mean, my dad was a dirt racer. I, we have pictures of him where, you know, old, next to old cars that he raced and, and things like that too. But I really grew up a NASCAR fan. My dad was an Earnhardt fan. So we were Earnhardt fans. And, you know, mm. uh, I got to go to my first cup race in the year 2000. And, and, you know, we used to watch on TV every Sunday. So, you know, the pavement stuff is really kind of what I came up on. Um, and then I kind of started getting really involved myself in motorsports. You know, when I was a teenager, I kind of taught myself how to build websites. And uh, Kevin Hamlin, who spots for Alex Bowman, oh. mm -hmm. um, he was a racer in, in Oregon and Washington. He's, he's kind of from the Seattle area. And he won the Northwest Tour Championship uh, a couple of years in a row. And I started kind of building his website and kind of taking care of that stuff. And then that kind of sprung into me helping some other drivers and some other stuff up there. Um, so I was kind of involved in, in, you know, the, that racing scene out there for a couple of years before I went to college. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, racing has always kind of been in my family around. We always went, you know, I, I, I remember like the first really big time race I went to as a kid was, um, the, uh, IndyCar race at Portland in 93. Um, and you know, like heart of like IndyCar, like the PPG IndyCar world series and, and, you know, Michael and Mario Andretti were racing and Emerson Fittipaldi was there. And I mean, it was like the star studded field of, of racers and, you know, meeting Jack Baldwin, who drove the like the Hot Wheels uh, Trans Am car and, and you know, just uh, really, really kind of neat time to be around racing. But um, but yeah, always, always going to races, always watching them on TV and, and any chance we could get. Wow. So then that brought you to where you're at today. And I think you live in North Carolina, if I saw that correctly. And uh, and then you got into NASCAR. You and Brian, I know Brian talks about it sometimes. He was in the, is it five, five off, five on pit crew? Uh, you both were in that same class or somewhere around there? Yeah. So I went to college um, down at the University of Miami in Florida and kind of while I was there, my dad and my, my, my family moved from Oregon to North Carolina because my dad wanted to get into the sport also. So while I was at college. He, he moved to, Char to the Charlotte area and, and uh, my dad was a truck driver for a lot of teams for 20 years um, and just retired here just this past season uh, in t after 2021. My dad worked at Gibbs for a long time. Still um, driving truck? But yeah, he was driving truck like he he was in the Xfinity series, got to win a championship with Daniel Suarez and, and oh, that's cool, you know, won a bunch of races there. But um, at the hmm. time, he was working for Brendan Gone and driving Brendan's hauler in the truck series, but also was catch can. And I was like in college, you know, was kind of setting myself up to work in sports. And I got done with school and I just wasn't really ready to go be a nine to five guy. And I was like, if my old ass dad could go over the wall, like I could go over the wall. I mean, come on. And so I, I came back to Charlotte after I graduated and, and went through PICRU, the, you know, pit instruction and training program in Mooresville and did five off, five on and all of that. Um, kind of the end of 06 um, after I'd gotten back from school and then and then went racing in 2007. And, you know, anything and anything we could pit, that's what we did. And, and you know, Brian was around. He knows that stuff, too. You know, it was Hooters Pro Cup and ARCA and, you know, a truck race here and there. And you know, riding in vans for 16 hours to make $200 and just, you know, whatever you could do to get experience. But, but yeah, and I, I worked nights, uh, or really, you know, early mornings at FedEx. When I got out of school, I would, I would work from like two to eight in the warehouse at FedEx. And then I had my whole day to then go, you know, go to practices and do whatever I needed to do to try to get experience and, and just kind of battled my way in over the years. And like, it's funny, like the way we got in, like people don't get in like that anymore. You can't get those experiences mm -hmm. and, and it's completely changed, but, but it was, it was fun. And, and, uh, you know, I think it, it made us better tire changers and better pick crew members because we went through all that. So you talked 
talked about being on uh, on pit road. Uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the cup pit road and a lot of the evolution that's gone on these last couple of years and and some of the behind the scenes stuff because I don't think most people have really an idea on on how hard you guys train and, and how much effort goes into that side of the side of the sport. I mean, it, it is somewhat talked about, but it's, it's so more in depth than I think anybody realizes, um, you know, where, where did you get your first, your first shot at and, and what did it take to just get that shot alone? I like, I started kind of doing Arca stuff and, 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 you know, getting those kind of few chances here and there. Like my, and my first chance to like really do a big NASCAR series was a guy had gotten sick at Roush um, and so I filled in a couple of races when Eric Darnell was driving the Northern tool and equipment truck in the truck series. And, you know, I've, I've, I joke all the time. I think I've been fired from Roush more than any person in the history of the world. I think I've been fired from Roush like seven times or something like that. But, um, that was kind of my first opportunity to get like on a halfway decent deal and, and, um, pitted the Zaxby's truck back in the day. Um, and then I had gone and worked for Robbie Benton, uh, when Robbie Benton had the Zaxby's deal. And then that next year after Robbie, um, after I worked at Robbie's, I think that was Oh seven or Oh eight. Um, I actually came back to Roush and did, uh, it was the very end of the, um, the tobacco sponsorship and, uh, Biffle ran like half a season for technically Baker curb with the red man sponsorship. And we pitted that deal. And then I was back up on Sundays when Eric, uh, or when, uh, uh, David Reagan was in the UPS car, the six car. And that season was really my first opportunity to, to get some cup races. And there was, there was a race at Vegas where Boris said was kind of starting and parking, but he was going to run some, some laps. And so I remember doing some stops kind of early on in a race on his car, but there was a race at Phoenix where Casey Kane had crashed out or had crashed and the whole back of the car was tore off of it. And I was, I was down in the six pit and they come running down. They're like, Hey, we're, you know, we're 50, 75 laps down, come down and get a couple of stops in on the nine car. And so I came down and, and, you know, you're talking like some legend guys on the nine at this point in, in butters and Jim Carbon and Kiwi, Eric Wilson, like, and like, Hey, just jump in and like, don't screw this up. And it, it was like, it was a really great experience. Cause you know, the, the, the chance to work with guys like that. And, and it's so funny, like all of these years later, you know, I just spent the last five years, part of RCR where Eric Wilson is like one of the main coaches. And so like having him coach me later on in my career after I got, got to do stops with him, but but yeah, that 2000, I think it was 2010 was like that first season I got. And then at the end of that year, um, Elliot Sadler was, was in the 19 Stanley car. And I got to do the last 10 races on that car on the rear. And then that car then turned into Marcus Ambrose's team the next season. And then that was that first season of Ambrose was my first full year in the cup series, which was 20, I think 2011. And that, you know, I basically from the end of 2010 have been in the cup series every year up until 2022. From from that first year in in the Cup Series, what kind of changes? What what were the biggest things that you look back and say, "Wow, that was a massive evolution from that first day to 2021, the end before the one lug nut." What how did how did the whole pit road evolve just just on that side of things during that decade or so? I mean, that like when I first started in the Cup Series, we still had catch can guys, and you know, as I was a rear changer. And because of catch can guys, the fuel man was always freed up to pull tires. And so when you change rears, like you literally only had to hit lug nuts. You weren't pulling tires ever because the jack man was pulling right rear and then the gas man was pulling left rear. 
And then when, you know, when you had those stops late in the race where you're going to do a short fill, you know, gas men will pull right front and left rear, um, just, you know, insanely fast pit stops. Um, and, and back then too, you know, you had extra people over the wall. You also had officials on pit road. Um, and you had, you know, basically standard IR hammer guns. And, you know, we are so far past all of those things at this point. And, you know, now there's way less people on payroll. Back then you had two changers, two carriers, a jack man, a fuel guy and a catch can guy. And we've since eliminated, uh, you know, a catch can guy. Fuel man can't do anything but fuel. We've eliminated a tire carrier. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of stuff has changed. And obviously we've also been through several, several iterations of pit guns because we're not using stock hammer guns. We went from stock hammer guns to clutch guns to then, you know, the, the payoli guns for five lug and, and now one lug. Uh, I mean, it's things have changed really drastically and, and even more so like in the last, you know, five or six years, four or five years as, as we've kind of gone into, you know, past clutch guns and doing, you know, eight, nine second stops, you know, five lug at the racetrack um, and, and, and like, you know, then switching over to the Paoli stuff, which slowed everybody down. And then we picked it up. And that's always the funny thing to me is when they've made changes, we slow down initially but then we figure it out and we get, you know, more efficient and we find ways and we, and the times always come back down. It's like, they always try to slow us down and then we speed right back up. Talk about real quick, uh, Justin, about, you know, you, you said you've done the, the pit crew since about 2010 and you you've done obviously the one lug, how much of a difference is that? Because we can see it as a fan's perspective or we can see it at the track, but like, is it really that much different than what we even anticipate? It's insanely different. And, and it's, it's a mindset shift. It's, um, you know, it, it's not as simple as five, five lugs versus one lug, you know, with five lug, you've got, you know, some opportunities to have some mistakes and, and, you know, stops are, are going to slow down if you make them with some mistakes. But when you're at a point where you have a single point of failure on, on all four corners of the car, you know, there is no margin for error, but then also things are happening so quickly you know, you, you go from, from doing five lug stops with a Paoli gun, when things were going really well, you'd be, you know, into the high tens, things like that. And then you go to this deal and, you know, eight second stops are, are possible. And just the movement around the car takes that much time. And it's you, like you are hair on fire balls out as fast as you can go around the car with one lug, which was not, never the case with five lug. Things happen so much slower with five lug and, and, you know, carriers have time to get set up and, and, you know, you have to take those opportunities to kind of get pauses and things like that. Like I was not a gunslinger tire changer. I was not going to hit patterns in 0.7 seconds. You know, I was a consistency guy. I'm going to hit 96, 97% on a season and, and, you know, I'm going to hit 0.9111s one, patterns like that, but that's where I live for my career. But to go from that to this new thing where, you know, you're off the right side in three sub three. I mean, that is insane. You know, we, we, before you'd be off the right. Like if you were off the right side in five, you were doing pretty good. And, and you know, to be two, two complete seconds faster than that is it's a mind sh mindset shift. And, and it's, you know, adjustments are almost like you can't do it. Like you cannot put a wrench in the car if you want to have a competitive pit stop. There's just no way to keep up. And so trying to to explain to people what that means like you, you get done with pit stops and your tongue is hanging out of your mouth because you are running as fast as you can go and everybody is going as fast as they can go and that's why you see some of the issues that you see because there's no time to check things there's no time to to check off on a front changer or check off on a rear changer it's like as soon as you have that feeling that the car is done jack men are dropping and, and it's 
it is so much different now than it used to be even a couple of years ago. Talk a little bit about the difference between last year's Paoli versus the new single lug Paoli because they are massive in size this year. The torque differences are are way different. Um, I mean, just carrying that thing around is is totally different. And the way you pull tires off, um, it's, again, a, a, a total change in mindset and, and ability. The, the Paoli guns themselves from an IR gun or, or what the old clutch guns were, were already a, a big change for us because they're so much bigger. They're so much heavier. There's way more nose weight to them. And it's like now when you go back and, and you hold one of those old clutch guns, they almost feel like toys. They're like, they're so small. And then to go from that bigger Paley gun, then to a one lug gun, that's, you know, a, a one inch drive. And, you know, you run as much air pressure through them as you can get. I mean, you've got your, your regulators buried, you know, to try to get as much air moving through them as you can. On a five lug gun, if we can get a nut torqued to 50, 60 foot pounds, like we're doing, that's all you need. You're, you're doing pretty good. You, you have four or five nuts torqued to 50 pounds. You're, you're, you're good to go on this new system. You're probably at least 500 pounds PS, uh, of, of torque on that gun or on that nut. And then, you know, there were times where we were six, seven, up to a thousand pounds torque on that gun or on that nut. So there's a lot more power. The gun is way heavier. The sockets are huge. I mean, the, the socket alone costs like $1,500. You know, the first pay or the first IR gun I ever bought, I bought used from herd for 600 bucks. It was the whole thing was $600. And now you can't even buy a socket for less than 1500 bucks. Um, but yeah, like, and we used to run like, and even with the Paoli guns, you run a single, you can run a single nitrogen bottle, but with these new Paoli guns or these new one lug guns, you run two bottles in tandem because as you have the trigger wide open, you want to have as much pressure in that line as you can. And having two bottles allows you to basically never have any drops and pressure in the lines. And so we go from running three bottles in the pit box because you had one for front, one for rear, one as a backup, and then for your tire guy. Now you're running four bottles, one for, you know, two for the front, two for the rear. And then the tire guy's got to start rolling his bottle out to pit road because he doesn't have anywhere to hook up on the pit box. Uh, but it, it is a massive shift. The guns are so much bigger, so much heavier. The maintenance on them is different. You know, you got to keep an eye on your socket. You know, you, you watch the at the end of a pit stop and everybody's on their socket. They're, you know, they're cleaning up the O-ring. They're making sure there's no burrs in the teeth. You know, guys are out there with hand files and dremels and all kinds of other crazy stuff to just keep everything as good as that can be. And, and you know, making sure that you, you know, when things are happening as quickly as they happen on pit road, all of your stuff has to be perfect because any little slow up was it will absolutely kill you on pit road. So in 2022, we saw a lot of issues uh, where tires were coming off. Uh, you know, it almost seemed like every few races, there was a different team that had an issue. Is that from maybe a gun uh, issue to the, to the lug uh, or but why were those issues maybe so much happening? It seemed like throughout the year, do we anticipate that will kind of be the same thing or teams will figure it out over time with just having that practice of the one lug? I definitely think it'll happen less and less. Um, I think it'll still happen. I mean, when you have a single point of failure, then it's still going to be a possibility. Um, I, I think what you're seeing kind of is a couple of things that there is this last year, there were a lot more less experienced guys on pit road. I mean, I've been doing this, you know, this last year was my 16th year and we are at a point now where people are coming into the sport and getting 
you know, a couple of months of training and then are like immediately out on the pit road in the cup series. Like when I came in and when Brian came in, like that was unheard of. I mean, it was three or four years before I sniffed the cup series, let alone was a full-time guy on a team. And so there's a lot less experience out there, but the way the, the these guns work and the way the nuts work, it's really easy to kind of get a false positive, like feeling of when they're actually tight. And so I think you're probably seeing a combination of, you know, guys not understanding what exactly the situation is. And, you know, when you've got a Jackman who, who has to hang a tire, he's got to come around to the left, peg the Jack, pump it up, hang the left rear, and then come back to the handle. And a lot of times he's hanging that left rear and basically just hoping that the rear changer is getting it tight. And then, you know, he's kind of more focused on the front. So it's like, if there's any problems on the rear, you know, <laughs> you're basically screwed on that left side. Um, but it's really easy to get, you know, like I said, a false feeling on, on the way those nuts are. And we got to a point where, I mean, at least I did, we had painted lines on the socket and it was, we originally started doing painted lines on the socket. So you could see on your helmet cam when you had nuts tight, but it got to the point where I was watching myself to see like when I could see those lines clearly on the socket to just be damn sure that that nut was tight. And it's like you those guns would almost hit the hammers on the inside of them to like almost push themselves on. And if you didn't have a flat hang or, you know, maybe things wobbled on there a little bit and that, you know, they weren't quite clean on the threads, you could get that false positive where it felt like, Oh, it's hitting the hammer. So it's tight. So I can leave, but it wasn't. And so you, you know, you had to be really sure about that stuff. And then there's lots of issues, you know, that nobody really talks about too, with like the detents and like the details are basically like these little plungers that are on the end of the cap that are supposed to hold the nut on. But the problem is, is they're too far down. So the nut basically has to be tight for the detents to all to be all the way released. Whereas like, you know, if you look at like a formula one car, the detents are like way at the end of the cap. And so that way, at least if the nut comes off, it's going to, those detents are going to hold it on. You don't have to basically have the nut all the way buried, but there's a number of factors in there. And, and, you know, like I said, some inexperience, you know, some stuff with the gun, some stuff with the way the setup is of the hub, but it, it will happen less and less as guys get more experience. Uh, but it will still be something that happens a few times throughout the year for sure. You kind of talked about putting the lines on the sockets. Um, let's say a pit stop just ends good, bad. How do you go back or what do you guys do to evaluate that pit stop to know that these nuts are tight or, um, you know, what issue had occurred? I mean, it, we're all wearing helmet cams, um, you know, so, so if, if there is any sort of question and, and it used to be, you know, if you, ha if you left the nut off or, you know, you weren't sure you could go back and there was time to look at things now, like if, if you have a problem, you have to stop the stop in like in the moment, you have to just raise your hand and be like, something is not right. Um, and that happened to me twice this year where I, I didn't trust that something was tight and, and both times happened on the right rear. And it was like, Jackman's gone. I'm still in the right rear with my hand waving saying, Hey, this isn't right. Jackman's got to come back. Cause you can't tighten the nut up on the ground. The car's got to be in the air. So the Jackman's got to come back. Um, th there is like literally no margin for error in those instances. But you know, when you get done with a stop, you know, as long as everything went fine, you've got helmet cams, we've got overhead cameras and now everything's networked together. Like, you know, a lot of teams don't even send their pit coaches to the racetrack anymore. They're watching from the command centers back at places like RCR has a big command center. It's got all these desks set up and a big screen. They've got all their race data. They're communicating with the teams and the pit coach sits in there and he's watching pit stops in real time. And then he's, he's texting people on the team to find out what happened. You know, a lot of times the gas man for, for all our teams was kind of that point of contact uh, for him where he was sitting there 
but you know, you could pull up your helmet cams. I know I had a GoPro, so I had the GoPro app on my phone. I could watch it on my phone or we had, you know, uh, uh, jump drives where you could plug your, your card in and watch it right there on the computer, on the pit box. Um, and some teams even like, you don't even have to plug your stuff in They're They're getting your, your helmet cam stuff in real time, uh, kind of depending on, on how, you know, technologically advanced their it departments are, but you know, you're kind of getting real time information and, and, you know, they're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of the, the timing and scoring data now that's getting fed to the manufacturers, they're doing like real time pit stop stuff. And even the NASCAR feeds now are giving you pit stop times. Uh, so, you know, what used to be, you know, you're breaking down either, you know, later on in the race or after the race, you know, maybe by Monday, now those breakdowns are happening in real time. The conversations are happening in real time and you're making adjustments in real time, uh, you know, depending on if, if, you know, there was a mistake during a stop or, or, you know, some technique stuff needs to be fixed. Like those things are happening in real time now. I think one of the biggest uh, attributes of a pit crew member has to be their self-awareness. Um, you know, pit road on, especially the cup series is unlike anything in the world of motorsports. And, and really that's one, that's one thing I realized quickly that uh, I, I did not have. And, and I, I just wasn't set out for, for cup pit road or pit road in general, really. But um you know that we we saw that uh video of um of you know the joe gibbs 20 jack man getting his hands stuck in that wheel at, at phoenix and uh i get chills just talking about what a what an incredibly scary situation but again back to the self-awareness of that team that was just um incredible by, incredible by everybody we talked about the speed of these pit stops for for them to realize there's an issue um and, and act accordingly was incredibly uh just impressive in, in every way to me maybe talk about the you know having that self-awareness the, these front tire changers and carriers running around the front um in the line of of the cars we you know a lot one thing that doesn't get talked about much is is maybe the gamesmanship by the drivers versus pit crews um you know that aspect has been highlighted a lot this year i've seen it uh since day one of being you know on pit road whatever series it may be is is those games with cars and people and as crazy as it sounds but it, it does exist so maybe talk about again the you know how important self-awareness is and 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 all of those little those little bits and pieces that you have to think about during a pit stop more than just actually performing the act of the pit stop well, I think that's what's important too so much about what we do in the experience and what concerns me a little bit about by throwing so many just new people and people that don't understand what they're getting themselves into is I spent the last five years on the 43 and, you know, the guys that I worked with, three of us were on that team from 2018 on. And then, you know, a couple of the other guys came in a little bit later, but, you know, we all worked together for a long time. And, and that's how you know when things go sideways, because you've done it so many times and you know what it feels like for things to go well. And then when things aren't going well, you don't even have to look, you don't have to have any sort of communication. You just know something is not right. You know, the, the sound is off, the feel is off. And, you know, as a tire changer, I, I spent most of my time as, as a rear changer in my career, but you sit down on, on a corner of the car and then you expect there to be a shadow. Like there, you expect somebody to be right here. And then when someone's not right here, it's really strange. And then, you know, the, the timing of hearing guns running and it's like, you get to the right rear, you expect the front changer, you, you should already hear his gun running. And then, you know, when you come around to the, uh, around to the, uh, the left side, you should be able to see him out of the corner of your eye, him come around also and sit down. And so you get so much, like you, you spend so much time doing stops together at practice at the racetrack. And when, 
when things aren't going well, when things are going sideways, you don't need to look, there doesn't need to be any sort of communication. You just know that something is wrong. And, you know, those 20 guys, super lucky that those, you know, that they had that awareness that they did see that, um, you know, and, and generally when you talk about the cars on pit road and, and gamesmanship and things like that, there are a couple of racetracks you have to watch out for. And there are a couple of drivers you have to watch out for because certain drivers you don't have to worry about, you know, they're going to give you room, you know, it's going to be cool. And other drivers, you know, they're going to cut you off and you better be damn ready for it. And, you know, there have been times where it's like, all right, like you're going to cut me off. Then I guess you're going to have a tire in your front windshield as you come around the next time. Um, and I've had guys cut me off, not give me space. You know, I um, have about ended up on the hood of cars. I've had my hand on a pillars trying to push myself. You know, they always say like, when you're going to get hit, just leave your feet because at least you'll just tumble off the hood and, and you'll be fine. But um, you, you have to have that experience. You have to have that knowledge and you have to understand those guys that are going to give you space and not. And, you know, when you go to places like Michigan or California, where you have massive pit stalls and a huge pit road, it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, you know, guys can kind of cut each other off a little bit and there's enough space in the pit lane that it's fine. But when you go to Martinsville or you go to Bristol, you know, you got tiny pit stalls or even some places like that, you wouldn't expect to have kind of small pit stalls like Charlotte or Texas. You know, those, those places have, you know, way smaller pit stalls than you would think. You have to be aware of those things. And, and I've posted helmet cam from, you know, my own experiences watching guys slide through our box or, or, you know, leaving the wall as they were leaving and just hoping that you got the timing right so that they didn't run you over coming out. Or, you know, you're, you sit down on the right rear and you know, that car, you know, the, the, you know, the 22 or, or, you know, the five or somebody's behind you and they're, you know, they were in before you and you just know that timing is going to be just perfect where you're going to be getting up off the right rear as they're pulling out. Um, and just having to try to have that knowledge of, of where they could be and know that you need to get your head turned as quickly as you can and try to hear, you know, maybe if they've pulled out already. Um, and, you know, it, there, there are a lot of things that go on that, that obviously people don't see. Um, but, you know, understanding where your guys are, understanding where your car is, understanding your car's tendencies, like, is he going to roll long? Is he going to stop short? You know, certain drivers are going to slow roll you. Certain drivers are going to bring it in hot and lock it down. Uh, so it's it's important for you to obviously know who's around you, but to also really understand what your driver is going to do and what your driver is going to do in certain situations. If they're coming around or, if, you know, if they're going to have if they're going to be nosed in or nosed out or, you know, any any number of those situations. And then you have to try to plan ahead and anticipate. But then as soon as you leave the wall, it could all go sideways anyway, which we've seen plenty of times where, you know, a car pulls in. And, you know, guys are either not ready, they weren't looking, they weren't anticipating, and then they get wiped out. Um, I remember a couple of years ago uh, on the 43, we were coming in, uh, pitting for Bubba, and guys pulling out, guys pulling in, people get spun. Um, and you kind of know, you start to see how this is playing out. And it was like, I never even left the wall. I was like, this isn't going to go well. I'm not going to step out here. And Bubba gets turned and about wipes out the guys on the back of the 48. And, and you know, like another like three or four inches and guys are pinched in between cars. I mean, that's all it would have taken. And just by the grace of God, Bubba got stopped enough to not completely wipe the guys out. But uh, th there are certain instances where you've seen guys leave the wall and get hit. And you were like, man, I saw that coming 10 miles away. Like, why did you even step off the wall? And you have to get to a certain point where it's like the stop is screwed anyway. You might as well have a little bit of self-preservation in that instance. And I, I don't think that happens sometimes for people. It's just like, well, car's coming. I guess I better jump off the wall. And it's like, no, no, you shouldn't have jumped off the wall right there. Uh, before we you know jump into our next couple topics, one thing 
not we're not going to talk about uh not talking about one lug um or you know jack types or catch can or no catch can or any of those things but what is one thing you'd like to see changed on pit road if anything is there a rule change is there a speed limiter are you okay with the way it is for me not being over pit wall i again it's it's one of the most badass group of individuals in all of more sports are you guys on on the cup series um pit road and and so i I enjoy every bit of it um but is there anything you'd like to see changed or are you happy with the way things are right now i don't know rule wise that i think that there's anything that needs to change you know i was you know i i made a nice career as a five lug changer and so you know i was you know hesitant and and kind of against the the one lug stuff because it's like that's just not what we do um and it you know as i got into it it was a fun challenge i'm glad i got to do it i'm glad i got you know got a chance to see what that looks like um i i know we're not going back i'm not naive enough to think that we're going to go back to five lug but in terms of like the rules and stuff on pit road um i don't necessarily know that i think anything or or, or that i think anything needs to change you know the the speed limit stuff is fine. Um, you know, the, the way things are kind of regulated, it's, it's, you know, the camera system, um, and you know, the people are like, Oh, you know, the, when the wheel comes off, it shouldn't be a four A suspension for everybody. Uh, it should be less cause that's not that big of a deal or, or whatever, but like, I kind of feel like that should be a big penalty. You know, the, it, there should be some reason why you shouldn't just be, you know, like not like like you shouldn't be okay with a wheel coming off because you were, you know, going really fast and, and, you know, you weren't responsible in in that moment. So it's like, I'm kind of okay with the penalty being kind of severe for that. Um, I don't think that bothers me as much, but I don't, I don't know that I think anything super glaring needs to change on pit road. I'm certainly, I'm sure things will change just because, you know, that's the nature of the beast. And and sometimes things get changed when they, they don't necessarily need to, but I don't know that there's anything super glaring on pit road right now. So obviously no longer on, on cup pit road. Um, real quick. What's, what's the uh, future plans? Um, what were you at or, or, you know, what's, what are you looking to do now? So I, I, I kind of, I, I was on the 43 for like the last five years. And just before that, like kind of after the 2017 season, I kind of thought my career was over at that point, uh, but got a kind of a late call to, to go up to RCR and ended up on the 43 cause RCR kind of managed all of that. Um, and had awesome five years on that deal and, and, you know, got some great friendships out of it and, and got to be a part of some cool stuff with that deal. Um, lost my spot over the summer. Uh, no hard feelings or anything like that. It's part of the deal. I've been fired plenty of times before um, and, and spent the last part of the season just kind of doing a bunch of random stuff. I, I did some truck races. I got to do Kimi Raikkonen's deal with that Project 91 at Watkins Glen. Um, you know, got to do some kind of neat stuff down the stretch here also. So, but I got to the end of the season and, you know, I've been doing this 16 years, I'm 39 years old. I know these cup teams are not looking for somebody that's my age anymore. And I know that I can still do it at a high level. I, I proved it to myself over and over, especially this last year. Um, and I had some offers to stay. I, I had people messaging me the other day about, about doing races next year, but I have a nine-year-old. He's playing baseball and basketball and swimming and stuff now. And, and I think it's just probably a good time. And I'm not saying I'm never going to pet another race again. You know, if, if, you know, the right opportunity came along, I'm certainly not going to, you know, not listen to opportunities that come along. Um, and I, I kind of have some pipe dreams of like maybe pitting the 24 hours of Daytona or going to Indy 500 and, you know, just to say I did it, but, um, I'm actually working on, um, kind of a complete shift of, you know, my kind of career, um, I have a bachelor's degree in marketing, but I'm not really interested in doing anything marketing wise. I'm kind of more interested. I, 
with my website for Dirt Tracker, I have this whole analytics section where I track stats and, and do all this type of stuff. So I'm kind of working on going towards data analytics a little bit and possibly data analytics in sports. Um, and so I'm actually in the middle right now of taking a bunch of classes and, and working through some stuff to kind of go that direction right now. And I've, I probably didn't get started soon enough. I probably should have started like as soon as the season was over, but I didn't start here until a couple of weeks ago. So I'm trying to, kind of trying to hustle to get that done, but, um, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Um, and again, you know, if, if an opportunity came along and somebody wanted me back in the cup series, I would certainly listen. Um, but, uh, but for the time being, I think I'm, uh, I think I'm cool for, uh, <laughs> for calling it a career. From a data analytics standpoint, like you were just mentioning, I'm curious uh, because I do a lot with simulations on the side uh, for NASCAR and different various like motorsports, uh, sports in general. Would it be anything like betting related, like sports down, or, like analytics down that realm? Is that kind of what you're thinking, or because that's a that's an area uh, industry really that's growing? Uh, we're seeing across the country as more and more states uh, move into the you know le legalization uh, from a betting standpoint. Is that kind of in the thought process of seeing kind of that trend? I know I'm just asking you off the fly. No, it's actually something that's I've discussed with people kind of in dirt racing because, uh, you know, there's been talk kind of behind the scenes about possibly betting coming to dirt racing and and the things that I'm doing, uh, you know, with kind of my website and, and my, my stats engine are, you know, could be beneficial for that stuff. So that's been talked about for sure. Um, and I am interested also in in you know, doing data analytics for, you know, for just stick and ball sports. You know, I, I've looked at some NBA jobs, some NFL jobs, things like that. Um, and, you know, I've also looked at some motorsports stuff because for me, the opportunity to kind of combine technical knowledge with the chance to kind of still be competitive, uh, I think would be really enticing. Uh, so that's definitely something I've, I've looked at as well. So I'm not quite sure yet which direction I'm going to go. I'm going to, I want to get through these classes and just kind of keep an eye on, on opportunities out there. But um, and I'm hoping, you know, some of the stuff that I learned will kind of help me with the site that I have, because I have the stats engine and I have a lot of stuff on here for free, but I've actually kind of started a subscription service as well, where I kind of provide some more advanced tools and, and uh, some, some extra stats and stuff like that. And I've actually got way more subscribers than I kind of thought I would end up having for that. Um, so that's kind of neat too. But um, so, yeah, so I'm kind of hoping that some of that stuff will help me out with my own project as well. Um, but the YouTube channel makes a little bit of money. The website makes a little bit of money and, and, uh, we've got some other things, uh, you know, my, my wife kind of has her own small business. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not in a super big hurry, but, um, you know, obviously the sooner I can get through this stuff, the better off, uh, I'll be. Let's jump into a little bit of your bread and butter. Um, the Tulsa shootout this past weekend, um, over 1600 cars, 300 or 3,400 green flag laps, 358 races, 107 flips. Six golden drillers, four first-time winners. I stole that from the Tulsa shootout Twitter, so <laughs> credit to them for those stats. Um, but talk a little bit about what happened this past week. I mean, an incredible event. Uh, you know, so many people, so much spotlight. Uh, you know, just insane amounts of racing night after night after night. Yeah, the, the Tulsa shootout is, you know, we talk about Chili Bowl a lot. Everybody talks about Chili Bowl and Christopher Bell and Kyle Larson and, and you know, all these big guys that race the Chili Bowl. But the Tulsa shootout is is a, a monster and a beast all of its own. The fact that they run so many cars and so many races over effectively four days is insane. You know, they start racing nine, eight, nine o'clock in the morning and they're racing all the way till 10 o'clock at night. And, and I mean, when I say from that time to that time, like there, there's always on track action, like it does not stop. Um, and it's all micro sprints, uh, micro sprints kind of look like midgets, but they're a little bit smaller. They run motorcycle engines. Um, some are winged, some are not winged. Uh, you know, there's kind of a couple of various different classes there, some young kids, and um, there's a lot of just grown adults that are, that are part of that as well. But 
the Tulsa shootout is very much, you know, it, when you talk about motorsports, there's front gate events and there's back gate events. And, you know, front gate events are those things like the Chili Bowl that are going to have a sold out crowd all week long. They're going to sell a ton of pit passes. Uh, there's just going to be a lot of people hanging out. The Tulsa shootout is very much a back gate event. There's not that many people in the stands. Um, it's not going to get a huge crowd on on streaming. Um, obviously, there's going to be the hardcores like me. And, and you know, if you pay attention to dirt racing social media, there's obviously, you know, quite a few people that are going to be tuned into that, that event online. Um, but that is very much a back end event, very much for the competitors. Um, you know, these are these are drivers and kids and teams that participate at short tracks all around the country all year long. Uh, and this is an opportunity to kind of be on the big stage, get in the spotlight. A lot of people have been kind of recognized and and seen for the first time at this event. So and I think that's why you see, you know, I, I talked about this on my daily show, but we had a couple of brawls over the weekend and people seem to be kind of a little bit extra tuned up there. And, and I think it's that pressure, that hope that maybe they'll get recognized and get an opportunity to go do something else. Um, so I think, you know, people are kind of ratcheted up a little bit once they get in that building, but uh, incredible event has been going on obviously for a long time and is, is a nice lead into the Chili Bowl. Uh, a lot of the guys that you will see at the Chili Bowl raced in the Tulsa shootout uh, in, in a couple of different categories. Kyle Busch was in the building with Brexton. Um, you know, we've seen some, some NASCAR guys and some other big names compete in that event here over the year as well. But um, quite, quite the event. Um, if you get a chance to tune in at, at the very least tune in on Saturday night, uh, you know, for the Tulsa shootout, when they get the features going uh, those, those final six features of the night are, you know, even, the junior sprints where you know you've got like six seven eight nine year olds like even those kids put on a good show so you know you, you can't go wrong tuning into even saturday night of the tulsa shootout yeah to your point uh kaylee bryson tweeted i think last wednesday or thursday the tulsa shootout is much more grueling than the chili bowl i woke up at 6 a.m currently 8 15 and still plan to be here several more hours for my race tonight um also one of the first races at 8 a.m tomorrow morning and that was at 9 15 so uh, again, uh, so many races over that four-day stretch, and and just such a tough, uh, tough schedule for those drivers to go in and and ha be able to compete at a high level four days for you know twelve hours at a time. So, um, but yeah, uh, next up the Chili Bowl next week. Um, you know what are we gonna see there? You said a lot of the same drivers, but maybe you know what's the big differences between the the Tulsa Shootout and, and what we're gonna see next week at the Chili Bowl. So the Chili Bowl is, you know, the full-on, you know, some, some people think the Chili Bowl is, is you know, the biggest event on the dirt racing calendar. And, and the interesting part to me of the Chili Bowl is you don't get a collection of drivers in one place, in one event, anywhere else like you do the entire motorsports calendar. And I'm talking the world over. You have people from so many different disciplines that descend and compete in that one event. And we're talking you know, dirt racers from all sorts of categories, late models, sprint cars, people who run midgets all year, non-wing stuff, modified racers. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like people show up to this event, but then you tack on that you have NASCAR drivers that run this event. Obviously Kyle Larson, Christopher Bell have, have had a ton of success in this building as have a number of other drivers. Um, and you know, we've had IndyCar drivers show up to this thing. Santino Ferrucci has been a part of the last couple of years. Uh, you know, you've got NHRA guys that have participated in this. Cruz Pedregon has been a racer at this event in the past is bringing two cars this year as an owner. So to get that collection of people in one place, and it's like, when you go to a cup race and, and you know, Brian knows this, you're not going to get a chance to meet a cup driver. Like, you know, if you're just buying a ticket to that event, you know, unless you can catch them at their souvenir trailer at the right time, or you catch them as they're, you know, they're driving out underneath the tunnel and you can grab an autograph real quick, but it's not easy to go meet Kyle Larson at a cup race. 
But when you go to the Chili Bowl, Kyle Larson just hangs out. You can walk up to him, have a conversation. The same is true of any of these other drivers. There is not an event like this anywhere in the country. Anybody can buy a pit pass. Anybody can come hang out. And it's like a big party for a week. You show up in the afternoon. You know, you 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 get your pit pass. You go sit in the stands. You hang out. It's BYOB. Like you could bring a cooler in, have a good time all day. And then, you know, there's partying after. You go to the casino. There's all this stuff to do. You know, kind of chili bowl after dark kind of thing. Um, but it's just kind of this big festival party with a bunch of racing thrown in and it's Tulsa, Oklahoma in the middle of January. So it's super cold. I've been there when it snowed, it's really stupid. Um, but it's, it's a great time. If you have not been, it's definitely something you should put on your, on your bucket list as a motorsports fan, because, you know, I, I would put chili bowl up there with, you know, with the 24 hours of Daytona, with the Indy 500, with, you know, any number of races in Europe, formula one shows, whatever Monaco, like, it's just one of those things you just have to see and experience. I went for the first time in 20, 2016 or 2017. And my co-host on Open Red, Ross, is like a Chili Bowl fanatic. He goes every year. And we got enough money together and put enough of it, like enough resources together to put him in a car. Ross doesn't race, hasn't raced, like has no experience, had never been in a midget. We put him in a midget and we put Open Red all over the side of it. People contributed. We found some sponsorship. And so I was there the whole week watching Ross kind of go through this experience. But later in the week, my dad and my brother showed up. And when you buy a pit pass at Chili Bowl, like you don't get a seat. Like you have to get a reserve seat if you want to see in the stands and the seats sell out. Like you're not getting a ticket unless you can get something secondhand. And we didn't have a seat. Well, next to the grandstands is this big deck. And like you, if you watch during the week for Chili Bowl, crews and people are kind of on and off this deck all the time because it's like the one place you can go and actually see the race. Well, the three of us, my dad, my brother, and me, we scoped our spot out. We, we came in at eight o'clock in the morning because Ross was like in an O main because he obviously wasn't super fast. But we, we came in early, saw Ross run, saw his chili bowl end. We went and got lunch and came back. And then we did not leave the deck until the driller was handed out at whatever midnight or 1230. And what we would do is we would hold, like we held our spot and then we had a cooler uh, like uh, hit at someone's trailer. And we would just rotate. So it was like somebody would get up, go to the bathroom, get beers, come back. And it was just this rotation all day between the three of us. Uh, but it is an incredible experience. So much racing. You know, these midgets, there's, you know, the, the cars that you see during the season in a USAC midget show are, are not quite the same as what you get at the Chili Bowl. At the Chili Bowl, you've got light cars, you've got a lot of carbon fiber, you've got a lot of TI. Um, and you know, these cars are built specifically, like you talk about indoor cars versus outdoor cars. These cars are purpose built for this one race. Um, and you know, you, you, have got cars that don't weigh that much, you know, probably less than a thousand pounds that have 400 horsepower. And it's like, it is insane that there's that much power and the, the power to weight ratio is crazy. Um, and the collect, like I said, the collection of drivers, the crazy race cars, um, and everybody chasing this little trophy that's like this big, that's the golden driller that everybody wants. Uh, but it is definitely an experience. Um, and if you haven't tuned in, I would very much uh, recommend to tune in to at least Saturday night from maybe the C's or D's on through the rest of the night. Now, you mentioned Christopher Bell and Kyle Larson. I know they're not racing in the Chili Bowl this year. You might have touched it on, on it on your podcast. Is there what was the reason behind that? If you if you know, maybe it was a non issue, but it's interesting that both of them aren't there. Yeah, it's kind of been this thing that's kind of been bubbling all year. Um, and it kind of came out during the summer that Larson was like, I'm not racing and I'm not racing because it only pays 10,000 to win. 
Um, and so there's been kind of this back and forth between Emmett Hahn and the people that run the event and, and you know, some other people kind of in the media. But when you look at the dirt racing calendar, the, most of the big shows in the dirt racing calendar are going to pay 50, 7,500. You know, now this year we've got a million dollar sprint car race. You know, you've got some stuff paying 150, 175,000 to win. So to have this kind of big marquee event on the schedule that only pays 10,000 to win has kind of been stuck in people's crawl for a while. So Larson is not going to run this. He, you know, he's won it a couple of times now. He's going to go run a late model in uh, New Mexico. There's a, a kind of this off-season winter event that happens in New Mexico at Votto Speedway Park called the Wild West Shootout. There's a ton of money on the line there. So Larson is going to go run the dirt late model there. And Bell is not running either. And I have not heard what the reasoning is publicly behind Bell not being there. He's not commented about it. Um, I don't know if he's trying to show support for Larson. I don't know if there's another reason. I've heard some other stuff, but nothing super, you know, super, uh, you know, kind of public and, and, and locked down factual about that. Uh, but so no Bell, no Larson, which basically means that something like five of the last six Chili Bowls have gone to those two guys. Um, so things are kind of wide open now. And, you know, the only other winners that are going to be in the building that have won basically in the last, you know, six or seven years are Tanner Thorson who won last year and Rico and even Rico was kind of a, uh, you know, a question mark as of late, but hmm. not, not having Bell and Larson in the field is going to, I think, you know, it's not going to have more of that kind of broad appeal, I think for motorsports, since those two guys aren't going to be there. But because they're not there, the whole thing is wide open now. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, we could have anybody win this thing. And, and I think as Dura Racing fans, as those hardcore people that are, are going to tune into this thing, this might be one of the most compelling Chili Bowls we've had in a really long time because you just don't know who's going to win. And, you know, hmm. on certain nights with Larson and Bell, you know, those guys were going to be at the front of the feature on Saturday night. They were going to win their prelim nights. So certain things were like, you didn't even need to watch. You just knew that those guys were going to win. But now with those guys out, that means prelim nights are, are now on the table and that golden driller on Saturday nights on the table. So it almost makes it more of an exciting event, which is why you're saying, hey, tune in because you don't know what's going to happen yeah. because it's wide open. So who's a name or two uh, for people listening? Because I know, you know, I'm going to probably be tuning in. So who's a name that I should be watching for that, you know, uh, that's either a sleeper or somebody that's going to be making a serious impact that you think, hey, keep an eye on this driver because uh, come end of day, you know, when the event's over, he could be the one holding the trophy. I think the, the favorite now with those two guys out, it has to be Buddy Kofoid. Buddy is a um, younger driver from California. He's part of the Toyota pipeline. Uh, you saw Buddy run some truck stuff with Kyle Busch, um, you know, on some of the dirt races. He's run some ARCA stuff on dirt as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Buddy has won back-to-back -back USAC National Midget titles. Now he won 13 races last year in the USAC National Midget Series. Uh, I think it was like 13 of 25 or 20, uh, 13 of 32 races. So you're talking 40% of the races Buddy okay. won. Wow. Um, and Buddy is going to go run this year a, a much larger sprint car schedule, but Buddy is kind of the guy right now. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's basically, you know, him and, you know, Rico will be in the mix. You have to think Tanner Thorson's going to be in the mix. He won last year. Um, and then, you know, from there, there's a whole host of other drivers. So, but it's not, you know, the last couple of years, it's been, you know, you could basically take Larson, Rico and Bell and then the field. And it's like, now you don't have that. Even with Buddy being kind of what I think is the favorite, he's not the favorite like Larson and Bell and those guys were, were the favorite. So it's definitely going to be much more wide open this year. And, and, you know, I talked about this on my show, but, you know, we thought maybe that this would turn in kind of a larger boycott. It's like, all right, well, Larson's not coming. Is he going to draw people away? And it hasn't happened. Like Larson and Bell aren't coming, but there's still 360 cars entered for this thing. 
So that's still, I think, the second or third biggest Chili Bowl field in the history of the event. So there's wow. plenty of people that will still be at this race. Well, it's interesting that you said Buddy Kofoid because when we had uh, Matt Weaver on, Matt, you know, he was saying, you know, watch out for this guy because I asked a similar question more so about NASCAR. And he said, if he's not winning in NASCAR in the next five years, something's terribly wrong. So, coming up through the uh, TRD pipeline, like you said. So Buddy Kofoid, definitely a guy to be looking at. And you, you did mention the 360 driver entries. I was curious if that was, uh, you know, similar to every year or like you said, Bell and Larson, we've talked about it, them not being there. Maybe it opens up the field dramatically where, you know, people feel like, hey, I can win. I can get in even if I am uh, whatever main I can keep working my way through. So that'll be really interesting uh, to watch. Is there a track uh, from uh, wise, is there a track that when they're racing there, you're like glued in. You're like anybody that's maybe not affiliated with the dirt track scene. Make sure you watch this or go to this event. Well, I mean, you you can't sleep on on the big races in dirt racing. Like, you know, you talk about the Knoxville Nationals, you talk about things like the Kings Royal, uh, you know, in sprint car racing. Um, on the late model side, you know, the Dirt Late Model Dream and and the World 100 at Eldora are absolutely must watch events. Um, and there are certain tracks on the schedule throughout the season. Like I love the California Bull Rings when it comes to the sprint cars. Uh, they just put on such a fun show. You get those cars on those on those little race tracks. It's it's a good time. Um, and, you know, from there, there, you know, there are any number of, of amazing dirt tracks around the country um, that are racing on on any given night. And, and you know, some of us, you know, we're, we're jealous of, you know, the fact that people get to go to these these racetracks every Friday night and, and see some incredible racing. But, um, you know, the, the big ones are, you know, kind of the, the lower lifts, I think, for people who are not necessarily dirt racing fans, you know, because you're going to see the big names at the Knoxville Nationals. You're going to see the big dirt late model guys at, at, at the Dream, at the World, at some of those big shows like that. The Crown Jewel events um, are, are going to be those ones that are going to garner a lot of attention. They're going to garner a lot of attention for, for a reason, because they pay big money. The best drivers in the world are going to be there. And you're going to see good racing. You know, the Knoxville Nationals is a half mile racetrack. And normally you don't think about racing being super awesome on a half mile racetrack because it's just so big. The cars can get spread out, but there's just something about Knoxville and, and, and Knoxville on that Saturday night. You know, you, you get, uh, you know, you've seen some really incredible battles and, and, you know, Larson has, you know, finally broke through here in the last year or two to get his first. And, and, you know, you saw Donnie shots repeat this year there. Um, so, you know, those races are, are big on the calendar and they're big on the calendar for a reason. Well, one thing that I put out to the public uh, and, and we try to get the community involved, right? As you're trying to build this new platform, this program, uh, one thing that we, Brian and I both believe in is, is listener involvement. And one, one question in particular that I kind of reached out and said, hey, anybody got something? And I like this one. Uh, and, and it comes from uh, Aaron Bearden 93 on Twitter. And he says, Justin does a good job spotlighting the news and discussion of dirt, dirt racing through dirt track tracker uh if you had to choose justin what sorts of coverage of the discipline would you like to see more or less of and are there any opportunities that aren't being capitalized on well i my biggest thing i think right now with with a lot of motorsports coverage certainly in dirt racing is there's very little like original stuff happening and and you know a lot of the news websites are posting press releases from teams press releases from the series there's not like a lot of new stuff happening there's not a lot of actual content creation happening um and you know i started doing what i was doing um you know because there's been gaps in the space and in you know the the audience that i've built in just a couple of years i think shows that there are opportunities to to do this kind of thing but 
you know, so I think there are opportunities for just generally, you know, media outlets and, and people who want to be involved in media to, to, to start podcasts, to start YouTube channels, to, to write about things, to, you know, to get big on, on TikTok or Instagram or, you know, on Twitter that, you know, there are opportunities to do a lot of stuff. Um, but I, from where I said, I think there is a huge opportunity for teams and drivers uh, to, to get involved more on, on, on the social platforms and to do more video content. It's something that I talk about kind of regularly through my own channels um, and kind of encourage um, is you, you look at like the nature of, of the content that you get, for example, on YouTube with dirt racing, the two biggest YouTube channels in dirt racing or two of the biggest, I, I think two of the top three, one is a regional dirt late model team based in Florida that run, you know, ran you know, runs mostly around the Southeast. They have run a few national shows, but Hunt the Front has over a hundred thousand subscribers. And then there's a kid that runs sprint cars in Oregon. In sprint cars in Oregon, like how much do you hear about sprint car racing in Oregon? You don't. This kid is from Southern Oregon, actually not far from where I grew up. Runs a little bit up and down the West Coast. Is, is trying to expand his schedule. He's going to run a midget at the Chili Bowl. He has 40,000 subscribers. Like those are two of your top three or four YouTube channels right there. Why are no big teams, no big drivers involved? If these guys can get 40, 50, 100,000 YouTube subscribers, imagine what Brad Sweet, Donnie Schatz, you know, the, the, you know, some of these big dirt late model guys could do with that. And it's like, they just don't take advantage. And I don't understand why they don't try to do more to really control the narrative. And if you look at like Formula One, for example, like the Aston Martin Formula One channel, uh, YouTube channel is amazing. Williams does stuff every single week. Uh, Mercedes does stuff every single week. Uh, Red Bull has their own documentary series following their team every single week. Like, why is there not more content like that happening? And it's like, it doesn't need to be a heavy lift. You don't need to have professional cameramen and, you know, you don't need to have editors and, and all of this stuff. Like you can do this stuff really simply with phones and GoPros and free software. Like it doesn't take a lot of time to do this. And it's an incredible way to, not only connect with fans and help promote your sponsors, do all that type of stuff, but there's actual money to be made. You can make money from YouTube. They pay you to put videos on YouTube. So it's like they're leaving money on the table, which I don't understand. So I, I wish, and we've seen a little bit, there's been a few teams. Uh, Brandon Shepard is a, is a big dirt lay model guy. I just started a YouTube channel here not long ago that they're getting really serious about now. So there's, it's slowly starting to creep in a little bit, uh, but I wish it was happening faster. And, and some of the stuff that we have gotten is like so amazing. Like, I don't understand how you watch this and you're not like, I want to watch more of this stuff because it's amazing. The behind the scenes stuff, the vlogging, what happens on race nights. I eat that stuff up and like, look at what Formula One has done in this country, right? Mm -hmm. They have a Netflix series. And all of a sudden, the entire world is a Formula One fan because they get to watch this TV show and you get to see all of the drama. And it's like, that's like, that's what people want. They want the story. They want to know what's happening. They want to understand the characters. It's not just about who wins the race or, you know, who crashes or whatever. Like, show us the personalities. Like, how is it, like, where is the drama? Where, you know, how are people stabbing each other in the back? Or, you know, like, look mm -hmm. at the things that like make that Formula One show so entertaining on Netflix. Like, that's the type of stuff we need. That's the type of content we need. We need the storytelling. And that will, will draw people back into NASCAR, dirt racing, all of that stuff. That's what we need. And I think that's where the real opportunity is when it comes to content in motorsports. 
No, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that's a, a great answer for what Aaron was asking. And, uh, you know, I know NASCAR did a race for the championship uh, series on Peacock uh, this past year where they were testing that product. Thought it was good. It was a good start, at least, because like you said, it gives that element of looking behind the scenes. Now, as they're following Kyle Busch along, you know, kind of his journey, we don't know in real time that he's going through those contract disputes. And then he starts talking about, you know, how that's working in in real time in that world. It really kind of opened it up, like you said. Now, we get to understand more behind the scenes, get to relate with individuals, their families, and get to see how that works. Because then that is what kind of builds uh, F1's doing it so well. Now they're putting a complex out in uh, Las Vegas uh, to have kind of a U.S. hub. So, uh, yeah, definitely a good answer there. So as we wrap up then this conversation, it's been amazing to be able to talk with you. Uh, how can everybody best support you on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? I know you're constantly busy doing so much. So how can everybody best support you, uh, you know, through a week-to-week basis? Uh, well, my daily shows, Dirt Tracker Daily, is available on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash Dirt Tracker, and it's D-I-R-T-R-A-C-K-R. And I know it's stupid, but that's what I could get for social media channels and and website address and make it all match. So that's what I have. Um, but youtube.com slash Dirt Tracker and Dirt Tracker Daily is available on all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you get podcasts, you can find it. I also have dirttracker.com. Um, and the main page of dirttracker.com is basically all of the day's news from dirt racing. And all of dirttracker.com is automated. I don't do any maintenance on the website on a daily basis. When you see news, like the news stories update there every 15 minutes, that's all just the code does that. It goes out and grabs the stories, puts them on the page. You don't need me to update things. Uh, so that is constantly updating as things update throughout the day. But dirttracker.com has news, podcast episodes. I have a streaming schedule there. So if you want to know what's happening on the on the streaming services and do racing on a daily basis, I have a schedule there. You can find all of the information about the podcast. Uh, and then I have this huge analytics section that has 14 or 1500 races worth of data for eight or nine different series. Uh, thousands of drivers, all kinds of stuff. So, um, and Dirt Tracker on all of the major social media platforms Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. You can find Dirt Tracker basically anywhere. Awesome. Well, that sounds like a lot. And that's definitely will get the community going towards your direction. Brian, I don't know how, if you have anything else to add uh, with our conversation here with Justin. Uh, real quick, obviously, an incredibly sad day for motorsports enthusiasts of all kinds with the death of Ken Block. Um, Man, he was so much more than just a man behind the helmet. Uh, his vision and creativity, you know, transcended any single element of, of motorsports world uh, in any discipline. Um, his brilliance, uh, not only behind the wheel, but um, his, you know, his vision of what was possible um, when man and machine come together, and, and they, he achieved things most did not think was possible. Um, you know, Ken Block's inspiration will be felt. For generations to come um and his legacy will live forever um also while we were talking um you know via um riding childers on twitter i just saw that uh rick townsend of townsend race cars has passed away as well um rick rick townsend and, and those cars were were much like the the ham keys and the hedgecocks and the marlows they were marquee um chassis and platforms and late mile stock division around here um so again tough tough couple days here in the motorsports world but um, Justin, thanks again for coming on. Um, really, really enjoyed the candid conversation, all the insight on on so many different topics. Um, you know, one, one of my favorite things we talk about a lot is, um, you know, one of the best parts is creating these relationships with people like you. And, and so the next time we can come on, we can, you know, dive into even more 
um, more incredible content, more incredible information and knowing what, what you guys are able, able to provide and, and all the great things you do. So thanks again. Appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can have you on again. Yeah, you guys uh, let me know. I, I will come on anytime and obviously mirror your thoughts ab about Ken Block. I, I'm, I talked about it really briefly on my show today, but Ken, we were talking about content creators, right? Like Ken was kind of like the OG, like motorsports, like YouTuber with the, you know, the Jim Connor videos. And I got really heavy for a little while into WRC. And it was like at that time where Ken was kind of coming in and running like some scattered WRC events. And it was so exciting having an American driver like in WRC. I, I loved following his career, but um you know super sad to lose him you know at, at 55 years old but man if we could all live a life like ken block lived i, I think the world would be uh would be a better place for sure absolutely i think that's well said uh justin thank you again we appreciate it we'll definitely have you on and and uh wish you nothing but the best uh, in 2023 yep thank you and that will conclude this episode of All Things Go. Make sure you like and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And be sure to follow Justin Fiedler on all the available social media accounts as well. For Brian Murphy, I'm Derek Yoder, and we'll catch you next time for Episode 9.